1 Kings, chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began, Solomon, to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary, and he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should uh, not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built." The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story, and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built a structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this house that you are building, If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and he finished it. Uh, The readings from 1 Kings 8 uh, verses 1 to 53. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark, And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned round and blessed all the assembly of Israel, 
while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts, You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct in his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name, and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel, and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place, and acknowledge your name, and turn from their sin. When you afflict them, then hear in heaven, and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. When you teach them the good way in which they should walk, and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, or blight, or mildew, or locust, or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague 
whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people, Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own hearts and stretching out his hands towards this house, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord towards the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of their enemy, far off or near, Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their minds and with all their hearts in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you towards their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, And maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be opened to the plea of your servant, and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant, when you brought our fathers out of, Is- out of Egypt, O Lord God. Let me pray for us as we start looking at this passage together. Heavenly Father God, thank you and praise you so much for your word. We pray that you would speak to us now through your spirit. May you help us to enjoy learning the good things of the gospel as we look at this glorious Old Testament passage. We pray that you be with us now in your strong name. Amen. Right, we have a wonderful amount of material to get through tonight, um, and we have 30 minutes in which to do it, so let's go. Um, But we don't want to shoot through this too quickly and not enjoy the beauty of what's going on. It's a really beautiful passage. Um, And it is helpful to acknowledge the fact that this material is hard. It it, it can be quite dull. Um, It can be quite disengaging, we think, because we think it doesn't really concern us. But, But don't disengage. This really does concern us. Because tonight, we are looking at what is possibly the most climactic part of the history of the people of God right up until this moment in the Old Testament. Because here we read, finally, the building of the temple. And the writer has a lot to say about this building. If you follow on from what Robin read, it's in even more detail as to what's going on with this building. It's obviously incredibly important. 
There's a reason why this building has so much time, so much effort, so much energy given over to it in Scripture. And because it does, we have to take it really seriously. We can't disengage. And so we come to our main question this evening on on our sheets, and it's an easy one. Why is the temple so very important? Well, very quickly, very quickly, as a brief um, sort of interlude to this, we have to go all the way back to Abraham for our bit of background. Abraham, in Genesis 17, because of his obedience to God, was blessed by God with a threefold blessing, if you remember. God says to Abraham in uh, 17, uh, 6 to 8, One, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, Abraham, and your descendants will be turned into a great nation. Two, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring forever. You will be my people and I will be your God. And three, verse eight of 17, I will give you and your offspring a land, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. Those are the three things that God promises to Abraham, descendants, land, and a continuous ongoing covenant relationship with the God of heaven. This is huge stuff. Genesis 17 is the start of God's revelation to his people, the start of God running after sinners and getting them back into relationship with him. And from that moment, the people of God are started. Abraham miraculously has a son, Isaac, the seed of whom grow into an enormous nation that end up in Egypt. They're enslaved and they're rescued 500 years later by, by God's rescuer, Moses, who then ratifies that covenant again with the people of God through the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. But they are still, at that point, a wandering people. Wandering in the wilderness, nomadic, searching for the promised land. And during that time, God gives them the tabernacle. A tent where he will reside with his people. A tent where his people can come and meet with the presence of God. This tent is the forerunner to the temple that we read of here tonight. But it has to be collapsed and it has to be reassembled wherever they go. It's not permanent. It's a reminder that the people are not quite yet settled. The people don't have their own land. But here in 1 Kings 6 to 8, finally, after hundreds of years, after a generation lost in the wilderness following a tent, God allows for his house to be built in stone. This is now a sign of permanence for the people of God. Their home They're now properly in the land with a temple at the center of the city. And now all three promises given to Abraham are fully ratified in this building. Abraham has descendants to the point where they're no longer family but a nation. These descendants now have a land they can call their own. They're not nomadic, they're established. And they now have the temple, the greater tabernacle, the place where God's people can now interface with God's presence as a sign of God's desire to be in covenant relationship with his people. This is an enormous moment in the history of God. And this brings us beautifully to our first point tonight, because the temple is important, as this is where the people meet with their God. The temple reminds the people of the presence of God, because the temple is where God is seen. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Just read with me again, chapter 8, verse 6 to 11. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. 
For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles are so long that the ends of the poles are seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not even stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, wonderfully, this kind of biblical literature gives me license to show you a picture of what's actually going on. So, thank you, Andy. Right, this is, this is more what the temple would look like. This is actually Herod's temple, but I wanted to give this as, a, as an idea of just how grand it would have been from everyone outside. It sort of overlooked the entire city. The cityscape would have been changed by this temple in its place. But moving on, more importantly, this is what's really going on inside the temple. We have um, the courtyard. That's where the people in our passage would have um, been standing. That's where all this is taking place. You have the altar and, and the sea. That's the big washing bowl. This is where all the sacrifices take place. Um, and then you go into the holy place. This is where the priests are allowed to minister. This is where they get their stuff ready. This is where they um, um, help the people in their sacrifices. And then you get to the really important part, this perfect cube right in the center of what's going on and um, where the Ark of the Covenant is found. And it's in this uh, that we call the most holy place. And in the most holy place, only one person, one day a year, could go in. No one was allowed to go in except one priest, one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, where the priest washed in blood would present himself as a representative to the people and offer up the sins of the people before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is um, where the presence of God was, specifically on the lid. That's the mercy seat, because that is literally where God dispensed his mercy to the people of God for the forgiveness of sins through the priest on one day a year on the Day of Atonement. Thanks very much, Andy. And that is what we read of here in 1 Kings 8, 1 to 13. This Ark of the Covenant being brought into its final home in this brand new, colossal Holy of Holies. This is the final part then of the construction of the temple, the most important part. The Ark of the Covenant being brought in so that God's people can now meet with their God through their priest. And look what happens, verse 10 and verse 11 of chapter 8. When the priests come out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, if that's not a full endorsement by God as to what's happening, I don't know what is. This is God simply blessing his temple by filling his house. This is climactic. More importantly, the people and the priests see the glory of the Lord. Now, can you imagine what that must have looked like? God's presence bursting forth in cloud and smoke, billowing through the temple, driving the priests away. It's a huge moment. The people of God are able to witness the presence of God in this powerful image. God, therefore, is saying, I'm now residing with you guys on the ark in the form of this cloud. And he fills his home as a blessing of this temple. He's saying, this temple is good and right and fit for me. He is fit and ready to meet with his people in this place. What then does the temple tell the people of God at the time? What does it remind them of? That he is with them. That he hasn't left them. 
that he is really keen to be in relationship with them. Indeed, he wants to dwell permanently with them. He's accessible. He's close. The center of the city, a constant reminder of where power really lies, a constant reminder of who the people really are, loved by this God who will not depart from them, a reminder that he wants to dwell with them and be in covenant with them. That's what the temple would have reminded the people of at the time. Every time you catch a sight of the temple, that's where my God is. That, that's where I meet with my God. But moving on, secondly, the temple is so very important because it's a reminder of the faithfulness of God. The temple is where the promises of God are fulfilled. Read with me again, verses 14 to 21. The king turned round, this is Solomon, and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hands has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying that since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, and you did well that it was in your heart, nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled the promise that he has made. For I have risen in the place of David, my father, and I sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel." And there I have placed a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made in our fathers when he brought them up out of the land of Egypt. The temple then very simply shows that God has kept his promises. First, the promises to Abraham, as we looked at earlier, the fact that the temple is a sign of Abraham having descendants, the people of God having land, the people now being able to have a relationship with the presence of God. But Solomon here picks up the promises to David. Now, King David is, is the great king, the, the father of Solomon, the king who was God's man on earth to keep and protect and build up his people. He wanted to build this temple. But we read back in 2 Samuel 7 that, that he wasn't allowed to. God told him, no, David, I'm going to have someone else build my house. And just listen to the promise that God gives David that Solomon talks of here. These are the exact words from 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the promise to Samuel 7. And 1 Kings 8 is a fulfillment. Solomon, David's offspring, has built God's house. The temple is a sign that what God promised to David has come true. The temple is built, and it was built by a son of David. What does the temple then tell the people of God watching at the time? That God is a faithful God. That God is someone who keeps his promises all the way from Abraham, all the way through King David. He is therefore a God they can trust, a God who they can be fully confident in. But thirdly, the temple is so very important because it is a reminder of the grace of God. The temple is where sins are forgiven. Now, this is really where we get to the heart of the text. This is the big stuff that Kat was reading through. 
Um, 22 to 53 of chapter 8 is one long continuous prayer. And it's this prayer that forms the backbone of this whole episode. This is Solomon coming before his God and dedicating this incredible building before the Lord. And it is this prayer that shows that Solomon has fully understood what this temple is about. He's already prayed, thanks to God, for his promise keeping in verses 12 to 21. And in coming to God in prayer, he fully understands that God is someone he can talk to and depend on and trust, someone with whom he has a relationship. Solomon praying is his outworking of his temple theology, if you like. He is someone who understands that he can come to God and pray to him. But it is in this prayer where he comes to the most fundamental part of why the temple is absolutely necessary for the people of God. And that is because the temple is the place where sins are forgiven. And it is the plea for the forgiveness of sins that very much dominates this prayer. I wonder if you notice the rhetoric, that the repetition of the passage as Kat read it. Let's just pick out a few verses together. Verses 31 to 32. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty, vindicating the righteous. Verses 33, 34, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel. Verses 35, 36, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. If they pray towards this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people. On and on it goes. If your people sin, when they sin, when they realize their sin, if they come to this house, if they pray towards this house, if they stretch out their arms to this house, and if they repent, then forgive, forgive. Solomon is pleading with the Lord praying on behalf of his people in faith and trust in a loving God, that God would use his house for what its true purpose is, to forgive sins. When the people sinned, they were to turn to this house. When the people were lost, where do they go to? To this house. And what does this house offer? The presence of the almighty God on a mercy seat that upon acceptance of a sacrifice via a priest forgives the sin of the people. Wherever the people of God are, their hearts are to be attracted like a magnet to this house. Because this is the place where the one thing that cut the people off from God, their sin, was fully dealt with. And so this house is not just a sign of God's faithfulness. It is not just a place where God resides. It is wholly necessary for the people of God to remain the people of God. In order for the people to be able to live with the perfect God in covenant relationship with him, they need this house. They so desperately need this house. They are lost without it. Without it, they cannot connect with God. Without it, they cannot know if they can trust him. Without it, they cannot be forgiven. That is why this temple is so very important. Now, this is wonderful stuff. No wonder the celebrations took a week to complete. It it makes sense that so much Bible time is given over to this. However, after all this magnificence, what on earth does this have to do with us? 
And this is really where we start to see what is really going on in this passage. Because we no longer have the temple. True. We have something that is so much better, and that is Jesus Christ. And we know this, don't we? This is obvious. And Christ, as we will see, is the greater temple. Because, point one, in Jesus, I am reminded of God's presence. Jesus, not the temple, is now where God is seen fully. Remember, we were looking at the presence of God billowing out and enveloping the most holy place and all the priests so that they couldn't minister. Well, as much as it was a visual sign of of God that would have excited the people, it must also have been quite a scene of some confusion, if you think about it. I don't know if you've ever been caught in fog. You probably have, either in the car or when, you, when you're walking. But, but everything just gets very difficult all of a sudden. You can't really do anything anymore, principally because you're half-blinded. You can't see anything. Everything's concealed. It's very unclear. It's actually quite unsettling. Isn't it interesting that this unsettling, unclear, fog-like cloud confuses and disrupts the priests in their work? In other words, as much as the presence of God is seen gloriously as a ratification of the new temple, the presence of God is also hiding something. There's still a mystery, if you like, as to what God actually looks like. As one commentator puts it, God is clearly there with them, but they do not see him in, shall we say, a bare-faced way. How is Jesus better than the temple? Because in him we literally look on the face of God. Jesus now brings true clarity. John 1, 14 to 16, And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, literally tabernacled among us. And we have now seen, properly seen, his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, John continues, but the only God who is at the Father's side, that is Jesus, has made God known. I now know and see God fully because Jesus, the Son of God, has dwelt with mankind. He is the image of God, Philippians 2. Not in bricks and mortar, but in the flesh. In the temple, God's presence was seen, but God remained elusive, confusing, unknowing. This is picked up by Solomon himself in chapter 8, verse 12. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said he would dwell in thick darkness. That is the way God in the Old Testament chooses to reside, in the mystery of thick, dark cloud. But in 1 John, we read that he now dwells in in the flesh. In John 1, he dwells in the flesh. God has chosen to reside and make himself fully known in the person of his son, in the clarity of a real human being, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is now where I connect with God, with God himself in the flesh. We no longer need a building. We come to a person. We no longer need to scramble up steep steps and ask the permission of a priest and navigate through the access of sacrifice, approaching a room I can't go into, looking into the face of a cloud I can't comprehend on only one day in the year. I interface with Jesus directly at any time. You see, as much as the temple is where the people connected with God, Jesus is now where I connect with God. But on top of that... Point two, in Jesus, 
I am reminded of God's faithfulness. As in Jesus, we see the true and final fulfillment of God's promises. You see, there's a problem here in our text in 1 Kings, isn't there? Because the the promise we read from 2 Samuel about David's eternal kingdom seems very quickly to be in peril. Because in only a few chapters' time, as we'll see next week, we see Solomon fall from grace in the most dramatic way. And his downfall comes the the eventual downfall of the entire kingdom. The kingdom is divided upon his death. The northern kingdom is destroyed entirely. The southern kingdom is exiled. And get this, the temple is completely raised to the ground. There's nothing left. What of God's promise to David then? What of God's promise to Abraham now? What are descendants of Abraham going to find blessing? Where is the king that is to descend from David that will sit on an eternal throne in his eternal kingdom? It's Jesus. Jesus is the greater son of Abraham. When Abraham was being promised that he would have a seed from his line that would be a blessing to the world, he wasn't talking about any of the great patriarchs or kings or priests or prophets. He was talking about Jesus. Jesus will come from the line of Abraham and he will bless the world. But Jesus is also the greater son of David. As much as God was talking about Solomon building his house in 2 Samuel, he is ultimately talking about Jesus. Jesus is going to establish the new kingdom, his kingdom that will know no end. It is he that will ultimately build God's house. In John 2, we read these remarkable words of Christ, where to the moneylenders that Jesus turfs out of the temple courts, he says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. He is, of course, talking about his resurrection. And with his resurrection, three days after his death, he will embody everything the temple stood for. It is he who will draw all men to himself, just as the temple did. It is he who will be the presence of God who will meet directly with men's hearts. It is he who will keep all of God's promise of blessing to those who accept him. Indeed, it is Jesus who, thirdly, reminds us of God's grace. Because it is in Jesus where we find true and lasting forgiveness of sins. The only reason I can be called a son of Abraham... The only reason I can approach the throne of God with confidence is because I have been forgiven. Utterly and completely in Jesus. As with his final and greatest act as he dies on a cross and in one breath bends all the promises and signs and pictures and prophecies and figures of the Old Testament onto himself. He takes the sin of every single person in the world over who will repent and believe in his name, past, present, and future. And he makes it possible in that final act of the final sacrifice for me to be clean. I am forgiven by God's incredible grace. And I am now ready for nothing that I have done or achieved, for me to be able to exist in a covenant relationship with the living God of heaven, but no longer at arm's reach from his presence, no longer having to approach a building, but, and this is the most astounding thing of the entire biblical narrative, with the God of heaven residing in my heart, we are the temple of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
I cannot help but turn back to Ephesians 1. Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul writes that because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. What Christ achieves by living with man, by making God's presence finally known, fulfilling all the promises concerning him, and by forgiving sin once and for all on the cross... He now makes possible the fact that the living God of heaven, the God that the people of the Old Testament couldn't even stand in the same room as, lives inside the heart of each of you sitting here who is a believer. That is where God now chooses to reside. Is that not incredible? Look at where we've come tonight. Considering the rigmarole, the hassle, the enormous effort, the difficulty with which this temple was planned and built and consecrated and dedicated and approached, God now resides in us. What does this passage have to do with us? Absolutely everything. Because surely to goodness, if all all this is true, and it is, the knowledge of this should have radical implications for how we live. Ultimately, it means, whether Christian or not Christian, I can now come to God, I can know his presence, I can put my total trust in him, and I can be forgiven wherever I am. Look at what the people have to go through in their prayers in chapter 8. They have to point towards the temple. It's all tied in with this house. They have to sacrifice so many goats and bulls and sheep in order to be forgiven. As part of Christ's church, I don't need to do that. I can come to him at any time, in my workplace, in my home, in my bed, on the bus, at at the breakfast table. It's astonishing to think we can do that with the living God. Why don't we do that? Why do we not pray often enough? Why do we not ask God in times of need immediately? Why do we not trust him, considering what he's fulfilled? Why do we not repent quickly, keeping short accounts with him? Because we're allowed to at any time of the day. Praise the Lord that I don't have to come to a specific church building on a Sunday to wait for forgiveness or to ask for help or to offer praise. It may shock some of us here, but because of this passage, this building, this room, whatever building we pray and hope we get is not the house of God. We are. I do not come to this place to just worship God here. I worship God anywhere, everywhere, all the time. Giving the church building a separate designation is dangerous. It makes me think that I can only come to the Lord in that building. I can only worship the Lord in that building. I can only find forgiveness in that building. Not true. That's religion. Even Solomon seems to understand this point. Look at this in verse 27 of chapter 8. Even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built? Solomon knows ultimately that God's not restricted to one room as much as that's how he chooses to reveal himself at that time. And indeed he isn't. He's in our hearts. And that truth frees me from the religion of being forced to confine my experience of God to a box, no matter how ornate that box might be. Do we still pray for a building? You bet. 
Can it still be used for God's glory? You bet. We are still encouraged to meet together and to edify each other and to practically love each other and to worship together. We do that by meeting together and a building is the perfect way in which we do that. But the church building is not the house of God. I do not echo directly Solomon's prayer and say, in this house forgiveness is found. It is in Jesus that forgiveness is found. It is in his house, him. It is in Jesus that we stand in the promises of God. It is in Jesus that I am allowed to enter into covenant with God. And that is what Christ's kingdom now looks like. That's the kingdom that God was promising to David. A kingdom where I can access all the blessings of the king at any point in my day through the power of the Holy Spirit. A kingdom where my prayers for forgiveness are answered yes and amen in Christ. What the people of God wouldn't have given to see and experience what we see and experience tonight. And that leads us on to our closing thought. Because what is it that we see and experience now? Well, it's true, isn't it, that actually we, even we, don't quite see this kingdom clearly yet. Just as the people of God didn't. Yes, we see it in all its completeness in that there's no earthly promise left for Jesus to fulfill. Christ has done everything for the church. We are now saved and safe in Christ. We now know what his kingdom looks like, but we don't see the full effects of that yet, do we? We're still suffering, struggling, doubting, darkened by the world. And that is because there is one more day of the Lord left. And that is Christ's return. Where finally and fully and with all the clarity of resurrected, perfected bodies, we will meet with the king literally face to face. Before the throne of God, where as Revelation 21 reminds us, there isn't any temple as the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. It is in eternity where, point one, we really experience God's presence. It is in eternity where, point two, we really experience God's faithfulness as we see finally all promises fulfilled. It is in eternity where, point three, we really fully experience the forgiveness of sins as we will finally sin no longer. As we close, remember where Andy started the series. The main line of 1 Kings is that if God's promises to his people are to be fulfilled, God's king needs to be obedient to God's word. What does Solomon do in this passage? He is obedient to God's word by erecting and dedicating this temple, reminding the entire people of God why it is so significant, and so they are blessed. In other words, if you have a king like Solomon... You've got a temple like this. And if you have a temple like this, you have all the blessings of God that we have described. Solomon exemplifies exactly what kind of king Israel should need. This building is Solomon's greatest triumph. He exemplifies the king that Israel need. A king that paves the way for people to have access to the living God so that they can be forgiven and live in covenant relationship with him. And that is the kind of king that we need. And praise God Almighty that that is the kind of king that we've got in Christ. Christ is the person who fulfills and magnifies all the blessings of the temple 
by living in flesh with mankind, by fulfilling finally and fully all the promises of God in the Old Testament, and by truly forgiving sins once and for all so that we no longer need to offer up an animal. Jesus is now my temple, my prophet, my priest, my king, my God, my sacrifice. But he is also the person who fulfills and magnifies all the attributes of the king. He makes it possible, just as Solomon made it possible for the people of God, for us to now enjoy a full, unadulterated covenant relationship with the Heavenly Father God by building in himself the means by which we completely enjoy the the blessings of God. And we end tonight, therefore, where the people of God ended up at the end of our passage. Verse 66 joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord has shown them. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father God, we thank you so very much that Jesus is the king that we have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible passage that shows us what the temple did for the people of God at the time, what it reminded them of. It reminded them that you were were a good God who loved them, who wanted to remain in relationship with them, and who wanted to forgive them, and who was a faithful God to his promises. Heavenly Father, thank you that that changes our prayer life. We're praying to a God who will listen to us. Thank you that we pray to a God who loves us. Thank you that we are allowed to come to you at any moment through Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit to ask for your forgiveness and to ask for your help. Thank you, Heavenly Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ. We now see everything clearly. Lord God, we pray that this would just leave us excited as we leave this building tonight. Lord, we praise your mighty and holy name. Amen.